Hello, and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. Hello. <laughs> turn those frowns upside Hi. down. Hi. <laughs> and then turn them back right side up. <laughs> and then put them back down again. Just just a full 360 <laughs> degrees on your frown. <laughs> oh, man, because this week I'm looking for the best book that'll make you cry. And, oh. of course, to help me are my friends, uh, cohorts... Actually, not really. We don't really work together. Although this is, it does feel like work sometimes. Um, this is a full-time job. Two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. Oh my God. My name is Joe Holscher. I don't, we have to work on themes. Like we need, we need themes that make people happy. Like this show should be a fun experience for oh. people. Um, not, too happy. not books that make you cry. Um, my name is Joe Holscher. I'm a high school English teacher, and if you are looking for a cry book, Nick, I've got one that just wrecked me. It is called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, and it will make you contemplate not only your own mortality, but the mortality of everybody that you love. Great. Um, bonjour, Nick. Bonjour, Joe. Liberté Italie. I'm sorry, you threw me off. I was doing a slogan. <clears throat> Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Those are French for... Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity. I'm Dr. Hmm. Ian DeYoung. I'm a high school English teacher. And today, I brought yet another book about France. Um, cool. And it's it's also a book <laughs> that makes books. me cry. Those two facts, I'm not crying because it's French. We'll get into why I cry. But it's Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. And guys, I got to say, this week, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Oh, good stuff. Classic. 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 May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. question i've never read a tale of two cities are there two cities in the book or is it like talking about like the rich nice. and the poor in a single city like right i don't want to get too deep into it. with yeah. the good questions i think um i think if uh dickens had written this in like the 1970s that's absolutely what it would have been about um and if it was like a sociological text but no this is one of my talking points i don't want to get into it too much but yeah, there are okay. two cities <laughs> the tale of two geographic cities that would have been joe's preferred title <laughs> Semicolon. Two separate. The cities. tale of two separate municipalities, <laughs> each with their own constitutional government. Semicolon, but it's this is also gonna be a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about that book. Um and also, uh Ian, I don't know anything about your book either. <laughs> <laughs> oh good, good. Well played. Uh-huh. Well played. Um, so is how do we how are we picking a winner here? Is the saddest one? Win? Sure. Oh, saddest, whoever cries the cr first, the criest, the criest book. <laughs> whoever tears up. I first. mean, I think we should pick a winner as we always do, according to your whims, Nick, and whether or not you have gas today. Yeah. Mm. Well, of course. Or we could pick a winner right now and save us all some time <laughs> and tears. Well, it's really about the journey, Joe. Um, oh, right. It is yeah. about the journey uh, together. So uh, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call Strongly Podcast here, where Strongly every week podcast. we pick a fantastic theme that uh, we get a lot of feedback on our themes. Good, 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 good feedback. And, <laughs> a lot um, of good feedback. A lot of constructive <laughs> feedback. A lot of that feedback. 
let's be Ooh. honest, a lot of that feedback is from us. Yeah. Stopping mm-hmm. and thinking, why are we doing this? But yeah, not this us week. And our wives, I feel, um, mm. have strong opinions <laughs> yes. on the our quality biggest of critics our themes and biggest fans. Theme selection. And uh, well, every week uh, after we pick that theme, um, Joe and Ian bring a book and uh, we pick a winner. Um, and so this week it's, it's Cry Books, of course. And we're going to figure out which book is the best Cry Book. Book and Make You Cry. And we have some rules to keep us on track. That'd be uh, just to, you know, because we are going to have that winner. And so rule number one is uh, uh, only unavoidable spoilers uh, today, gentlemen. We don't want to ruin ruin any okay. books here. This is a place of joy. Rule number two is omit needless words, Joe. Omit needless words, okay. Joe. Got, I, hey, I'm there. Keep your st- pus stories <laughs> of the farm. <laughs> To I told yourself. one pus story on this podcast on like week four. <laughs> I, I will say when people talk to me about the show, very frequently the pus story comes up. How does it not? It's the most I've jarring story I think I've ever heard. <laughs> he pulled the plug. Oh, <laughs> that has all been bleeped. That's bleeped out. That's been bleeped out. That story is allowed to live exactly one time. Well, it lives in our hearts forever. And what episode is that even on? Do we we should be able to reference Go. this? We should. Yes. Um, uh, is there it a third? It comes up so rule? often, though. Hmm. I'm trying to figure is out what episode rule? it is, Ian. Don't rush me. Oh, sorry. sorry I'm gonna go sorry. listen to all the episodes real quick. Okay. <laughs> Litheads, right, we'll pause. Wait. Pause your pause your recording and just go listen to all the episodes. We'll be back in about. I don't know, 50 hours? Yeah. Yep, 50. 60 hours probably, yeah. While they're doing that, I'll read the last rule, which is uh, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Vince Lombardi. Uh, Vince Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi famously also wrote our shadow rules. They're the same every week. Um, (laughs) You know them. You can say them with me, lit heads. Off with his head, off with her head, and off with their heads. I want to give a special shout out today to Cam DeYoung, who... um, May or may not be related to me, and definitely suggested this this theme. Um, we do like it when you suggest themes because it actually makes our job easier. So please keep it them does. coming, Leadheads. We don't mind reading books, but we are really well. I don't want to say we're bad <laughs> at coming up with themes <laughs> when it comes but to making a, connections whoa. between them. It's really an area hard. of improvement. So thank you, Cam DeYoung. Thank you. <laughs> yes, there it is. There's the third thank you. We can continue with the show. <laughs> Nick was uh, taking a little nap there. Uh, <laughs> Lidheads, did you know Nick take Nick takes micro naps throughout the show? If you listen carefully, you can hear when he's doing them. Because it's, it's the gentle sound. Of you just have to listen closely. <laughs> and, and Nick, and then Nick, Nick usually comes in with like, I have a lot of questions. No, what's happening? Hey, Joe, Joe. Yeah, let's focus. I'm fine. Um, hey, I'm ready. Can you please take 30 seconds to tell me what your book is about? Absolutely, Nick. Nick, you are going to die. But don't take it too personally because so is everyone that you love. Uh, this is the premise of being mortal. Your life is a story and a good ending matters. So the question becomes, what does a good ending look like? Atul Gawande? Physician, writer, and public health researcher sets out to answer that question in a satisfying way. We want to maximize longevity, but by synthesizing trends, data, and personal experience, Gawanda makes a strong and convincing argument that we should be optimizing quality of life. 
quality. You're on about quality again. Interesting. That sounds like a real downer, Joe. Thank you. Um, I can see why that would make anybody cry. Yeah, (laughs) it's a sad book. Uh, Great. Uh, Ian, now it's your turn. Okay. To be sad. (laughs) There is a reason Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, is widely known and loved. Its plot moves nimbly from the dungeons of the Bastille to the courtrooms of London to the perilous streets of Revolution-era Paris. Its characters are unique and original, and its themes of memory, consequences, and selfless love are enough to make me cry. It's not a downer, and this week is not about downers. It's about what makes me cry. Fair enough. Uh, I think a pretty important point that you just brought up, Ian. Sure. Lots of things make us cry. Yeah. Right. Like Tears of joy, perhaps. Uppers. Yeah. Exciting sports moments. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, as we record this, um, a little personal moment here. As we record this, it's Tuesday, the 20th, and the Milwaukee Bucks are playing for their first national championship in 50 years. (laughs) In our lifetime. In our lifetime. And several people's lifetimes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but our lifetime is the ones that matter. And like, I don't know. I'm not super invested, but I think if they win... And if it's like super great, I might yeah. I might weep a little bit. Little Absolutely. Good job, Box. Can I say something? I wish mm. you would. Um, thank you. You um, so rarely do. I, I'm not super invested in this because the Bucks have disappointed me my entire life. And yes, so therefore absolutely. it's very hard yeah. to invest yourself into something that just constantly lets you down. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of self-help books that would say, you know what? It's just time to walk away. You know what I mean? Boy. Like you, you just walk right. away from this that. Is a, it's an abusive relationship. It's like an, you yeah. give and give and give to these sports teams that you love and they do nothing but disappoint. Yeah. When do I get? And yeah. But you know what? I think if they win tonight, I will watch one game next season. That's how I'll, I'll, I commit to that. Wow, that's your celebration. <laughs> if they win the finals next year, you would watch two games the following and season. So and eventually, and so on. Well, yeah. by the rule of doubling, pretty soon you'll be to the moon. Yeah. I don't know what Tale of Two Cities about, is about, but I know even less about Joe's. So, mm. Joe, with that, that makes, <laughs> stamp of makes approval. Yeah, I yep. think it makes sense. Um, why don't you go first? Talk to me about how uh, everybody I love is going to die, Joe. Yeah, that's okay. That's like the, if this book has a thesis, it's that. It's, hey, everyone that you love is going to die and you are almost surely incredibly unprepared for the actual process of death. Like for what death looks like. Um, Let me back up a second. Having said one sentence, uh, I want to talk about Atul Gawande. Um, Atul Gawande is a, in a kind of unique position to write this book. He's a super qualified dude. He's, do you know how sometimes people are like annoyingly qualified? Like you mm. look at their resume or their Wikipedia page and you're like, oh my God. The three of us, I would say, are annoyingly qualified to talk about right. uh, literature that makes right. us cry. For sure, right. all three of us. <laughs> Definitely all three of us. Um, Atul Gawande is annoyingly qualified. Uh, he, he was born to immigrants. He got his undergraduate at Stanford. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He studied philosophy, politics, economics. He went to Harvard Medical School, um, was like a medical advisor for Bill Clinton, later Barack Obama, and currently Joe Biden. Um, during that time, he was also a writer for State, for I'm sorry, a writer for Slate, and then became a staff writer for the New Yorker. Like you know how that just happens sometimes, like how mm-hmm. you 
I think we've all been a staff writer for the New Yorker at one point in our lives. Yeah, you write a couple articles for your friend because he asks you to, and then the New Yorker brings you on as a staff writer. At one point, he wrote an article. Um, it was actually a tale of his own two cities where he talked about healthcare costs in two different cities in Texas and exposed how like privatization of healthcare and profit seeking in healthcare led to, I mean, stuff that's not going to surprise us, you know, disastrous consequences and over medication and insane, um, insane healthcare costs for one town. Okay. And good connection, Joe. Good connection. Two cities. Yep. Two. The article was so influential. <laughs> the article was so influential that when Barack Obama read it, he handed it to his aides and said, this is the problem we need to fix. Um, also, when Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger read it, they appreciated it so much, they sent him out of the blue a check for $20,000 as a <laughs> thank you. <laughs> huh. So- Guys, okay. it seems like this is our route to wealth. Yeah, this seems like mm-hmm. a profitable approach. Write something that impresses Warren Buffett so much he sends you $20,000. Yeah, uh, but of course you we for will a living. have to... <laughs> I just, I'm just writing. <laughs> I'm writing a tale of two cities. I frantically try and impress Warren Buffett. It's not going well. <laughs> because Atul Gawande is... Um, a stand-up guy and like annoyingly overqualified. He of course returned the money. He did not want to cash that check. Oh, at which point, so well, at which point, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger wrote him a new check oh, for forty thousand dollars. Oh man, donate it. Okay, donate the check. Well, that was a good call. Yeah, that that is what he did. He donated the check to okay, a good. local of course um, he hospital. Did. Yeah, of, of course he did. Of course he did. So yeah, Atul Gawande is a super interesting dude. Like he's led a incredibly accomplished life, kind of riding this line between um, healthcare and medicine and journalism and I guess politics and political advisory. The last like extremely overqualified author we had was uh, whoever brought Michelle Obama, uh, her her book, mm. and and I yes. think the majority of the time was just going through her accomplishments. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like <laughs> let me use my first eighteen minutes to talk about how amazing Michelle Obama is. <laughs> okay, we got it. He writes a lot of stuff about, I guess, like how to make processes and procedures better. Uh, The first book of his that I read was called The Checklist Manifesto, which is a book that he wrote about how important checklists are when doing complex things. Like he talks in that book about how like when you introduce checklists to something like flying an airplane, um, the act of flying an airplane gets way, way, way safer. Um, when you introduce checklist in a surgery theater, it has the same effects on survival as something like washing your hands. <laughs> like, nice. like it's just, it's insane. Um, and in this book, Being Mortal, I think his most famous book, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip a little bit there, but mm-hmm. um, I think it's the one that's gotten the most publicity. He talks about how to make old age and dying better. Oh boy. Okay. Now, do you have a list for us? 
Oh, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> no, I, I, I do have a list. I do well, have a list. I do have a list. Maybe, Nick, give give Joe some credit. Maybe he put his notes for today in the form of a checklist. Mm-hmm. He did kind of check off. I've talked about Atul Gawande's uh, qualifications. <laughs> now I'm going to talk about the other thing he said. Yeah, it does feel listy. So this book is about creating lists, and at point, in no point there are, is a list in this book? Oof. There is at no point a list in this book. Well, okay. Dang it. That yeah. I smell a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> in no particular order, Joe, do you want to tell me some of these things so I can prepare for my old age? Well, I am going to do them in a particular order. It is the order in which you should do them because you can't do like the end of life stuff before the get into <laughs> stuff, right? I don't know. Right. That, that might be fun. a little you know. sense. Okay. Uh, step number one. When you get old and you have to go to the doctor, get a geriatrician, not a general purpose doctor, a geriatrician. This is somebody who specializes in care for the elderly. Okay, so this is going to be highly specific, like functional, functional uh, advice. This isn't like you know, make sure you smell the flowers, (laughs) embrace the loved, enjoy the sunshine. (laughs) Yeah, so okay, that's one of the things that I really. Most people's knees give out around sixty-two and a half, so (laughs) book those appointments ahead of time, folks. (laughs) Okay, that's a great point about this book. Like, I feel like so many books about getting old, so many books about the end of life, are very like not wishy-washy, but stop and smell the flowers. Yeah, That is not this book. This book is like, hey, you want your life to get better? You should get a doctor that knows how to deal with old people because most doctors don't like dealing with old people because they're cranky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how this this book seems like really approachable just before you go on with your list. Is this like um, like an extremely digestible... Very yes. practical uh, series of advice on just what the, the the second chapter of everybody's life. Yes, that, that's that's exactly or what this final is. chapter it in the final chapter. Um, I guess it's kind of like the final two chapters of your life. <laughs> the, uh, the whole first half of this book is just okay. dedicated to like essentially the part of aging that we hit that everybody hits where you are no longer fully independent. Right. Like you just start to lose a little of that strength, a little of that cognitive awareness, and you just aren't great on your own anymore. Mm. When um, do you get your driver's license taken away? Does it cover that? Y- y- yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. It talks about <laughs> like, a, yeah. Can I tell you guys a really sweet story about an yeah. old man? Yes. Is it the old working... man from Up? Because no. we've seen Up. Oh, he could have been. Okay. That would be perfectly in place for Cry, Cry Week. Yes. Let me tell you about the first 12 minutes of off. <laughs> the saddest movie ever made. So I was working a yard sale back when I lived in Wisconsin. Um, uh, I was working Go a yard sale up in Sheboygan. <laughs> and um, this old fella came up, uh, came into the yard sale. And I was making conversation with him. He wasn't really like looking to buy. He wasn't looking for any, anything particular. But um, oh god! In the course of the con- I asked him like, "How was your day going?" or something oh, like that. Oh no! And he said, oh, "My day is going great. I just got my driver's license renewed." I was like, "That's wonderful!" Oh. And he pulled it out and showed me. And then he like pointed to the date and he said, "Look at that date. I'm 95 years old. When that is this expires, <laughs> I'll be 103." <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> was that a heartwarming was story like, or a terrifying? He was so story. happy. He's got like, I've got this locked in. I've got another eight years of driving. Yeah, and I was just like, I need to move away from Sheboygan. Like it was a guarantee of of life, wasn't it? Yes. It's like, well, the driver's license says I I need to re re up <laughs> in eight years. So, so I guess Joe, my question is, does Atul Gawande recommend that you kind of? Wait until your eyes are about to give out and then go re-up your driver's license for eight years. Right. When it gets fuzzy just at the edges, make a driver's license appointment. No, he... he <laughs> is, is that when you um, pointed out, sir, that says 2005. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you ask about driver's license, though, because this is, of course, like this tremendous, like last bastion of independence for old people. And it is like this famous struggle when grandma can't really drive anymore and we have to take away her driver's license. Uh, there's an adorable part in this book, just like Ian's rummage sale, old man, where Atul Gawande is hanging out with this like 95 year old dude who's taking care of his own aging wife. And the 95 year old is bragging about what a great driver he still is. And to prove it, they go for a drive together. <laughs> but it it is like this incredibly important thing as you get older. Yeah, because it's all you have left. Well, it's it's control too. It brings me to the second point and talks about um, it, where it, where Atul Gawande makes a case not for sending people or for going to a nursing home as you get older, but he makes a case that you should go to an assisted living facility, which is a very faint distinction between the two, but it's a distinction that Gwande off, uh, argues makes all the difference in the world when it comes to quality of life as you get older. How old is uh, the author here when this book? You don't have to do like the math here, just ballpark it. I think what spurs this on, if I had to guess, I would say Atul Gawande is like 50 years old when he writes okay. this book, maybe between 50 and 60. Um, and one of the things that I think spurs this book is his own father is getting old and frail and okay. um, needs to be taken care of, right? What, Nick, you asked if this book is approachable, like if this is digestible. And the answer is, oh my God, it is so easy to read and like, so like nice to read and sweet and like heartwarming to read, but also sad to read. And one of the things that makes it that way is Gawande talks a lot about studies and about like the history of nursing homes or the assisti the history of assisted living. But he grounds almost all of his stories in real life narratives of people that he's worked with or met. And it ranges from his wife's grandmother when he first met her when he was a college student to his own father's experiences getting old, getting ill, and uh, and eventually dying. Um, and like those stories like are just written with a tremendous amount of heart and you like kind of live with these people for the chapter that they're in, uh, like fall in love with these people. And when they die or <clears throat> when they succumb to whatever fate that is, whether it's, you know, falling and breaking a hip and getting assigned to a nursing home or whether it's, it's, you know, choosing to, um, to, to die at the end of their life. Um, it, you, you kind of like cry for them, right? Like for this person, but you also can't help, but like 
just extrapolate this into your own life. Like when I read this, I can't help but think about my own parents who are both 70 years old, right? And who are just kind of at the end of their working life. And like the next 15 years, right, are going to be kind of going down this same path. Like you can't help but do that when you read this book. Hey, Joe's parents, listen. Yeah, oh my goodness. And I tell you, you got, I think you have a lot left in you. Way more than the springtime yeah. of your life. Don't don't listen to Joe, who thinks apparently you keep it going. Mom and Dad, this is Joe. Licking his lips. I think you're both goners. (laughs) I think you're both toast. (laughs) You mentioned these tips. Yes. You mentioned tips. So be Uh, so we can be better prepared for this inevitable doom that there's no escape from. <laughs> is it like, I mean, I don't know. It, it sounds, it sounds really fascinating. Is he like, um, is he like just, just like a song where the refrain is, and then they died just over and over. Is it like, I'm going to give you a bunch of case studies of people who passed away or who are probably by now passed away. And this is why you should take care of yourself. This is why you should prepare. Yeah. This is why. <laughs> You think you think it's like a, a one person dies and then there's like a, a piece of advice that follows. That's why you should never <laughs> drive <past> seventy four. <laughs> it's it's a song in which the refrain is not and then a person died. It's a song in which the refrain is and then they got a little bit older and their life got a little bit worse. Jeez, okay. because they Yikes. didn't do the right things. Yeah. Oh, but because like, they didn't do the right thing. Fun to read. It kind Holy of is. Cow, the, it's brutal. It's, yeah, that no, is. No, no, no. That's rough. It's, it sounds a little rough. It's heartwarming to read because okay. you see, you, you kind of see like these kids dealing with their parents is normally who it is. Like you're either talking to the older parents or the, I mean, frankly, kind of old kids at this point. And these people having this classic struggle of, I want to do everything I can for my parents. However, that can't be a massive imposition on my own life. Like I cannot give my father around the clock care. Okay. So what do I do? Like, like what's next? What can I do? That what is the are best the for action him? items? I love it, Joe. So I think we'll just have to take your, your word for it, that it is heartwarming. Um, yes. At this point in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um uh so get back get back to your list yeah i work through your list joe one of the big things that he t- stresses is as you approach the end of your life it is the quality of life that matters and not the quantity of your life and one of the number one ways to preserve the quality of your life is to preserve your autonomy in this world right like to preserve your ability to make decisions your ability to for example live someplace that allows you to have house plants or pets or like a front door that locks right like like this this these stupid things that we take for granted but in certain situations in like classic nursing homes things that are removed freedoms that are removed in the name of keeping you safe And one of the things Gawande argues really convincingly is when we have old people in our lives, we always optimize for their safety. Like if you leave it up to us, we optimize for safety. He says, that is not what's best for them. You should optimize to whatever extent you can for their autonomy. Yeah, but have you seen some of these older people driving? I mean, they should not be driving. (laughs) So what point, where's the line, Joe? At what point? Is it 73? Is it 76? 
are they can drive at 78 years old like Ian's friend because that's Ian's ridiculous. friend is 103 and he's still on the road to be clear that was more than eight years ago and he's not my friend I would say he's a nodding acquaintance at best oh my god Ian are you trying to oh god how long ago is this story Ian because now I'm just realizing that maybe your friend is no longer with us that's I think well, that's again, a really good guys. Yes, nodding acquaintance at best, and also you know what? If he <laughs> if he went, friend. he probably went super happy because either <laughs> Into he a wall. you know passed away still in possession <laughs> of his driver's license, or he passed away having cheated the system and gotten a driver's license that took him all the way up to 103. So it's a win 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 for him. Yeah, <laughs> or he got into a and also car accident. he got some good deals at that yard sale. So that's also a, a positive. That is a positive. Joe, please continue. He says, look, we know death is here. Like death is right here in the street with us. But if we can look at it ahead of time, if we can sit down with our parents and have these end of life, end of life conversations from things like, hey, what is a good quality of life look like for you? If I have to make a decision that's going to, that's going to mean you are on a ventilator, do you want to be on a ventilator? If I have to make a decision that we give you CPR and know that that like breaks your ribs and you're going to be recovering in tremendous pain and probably have something under six months to live at that point, do you want us to make that decision? Like, what does it look like for you? He tells a story about his dad having this kind of conversation with his dad as he got older in life. And at first his dad said, I know my life is good if I can still play tennis. Right. That's how I know my life is good. Uh Can I still play tennis? Like if I, yep, if I can, good. Right. Like that's how you should make the decision. If this surgery or recovery or whatever it is will allow me to play tennis. Well, then some things happen to his dad and he's not able to play tennis anymore. And Atul has another conversation with his dad and he says, Hey, like you can't play tennis anymore. (laughs) Do you st- <laughs> and, and he but you just know where the story's going. <laughs> well, well, he says, hey, you can't play tennis anymore. Is this how you still feel? Right. Is this like the quality of life that you want? And his dad had revised his opinion at this point. And he, <laughs> he watches tennis now. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's it's actually not far off. He says, okay. Please, my ball. life is good if I can eat chocolate ice cream. And watch football on TV. Whoa! Chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV. But <laughs> is is like crazy as that is. That gives you a, a goalpost. Like it gives you a barometer. It gives you like a measuring tool. Okay, my dad needs this surgery, right? Like I'm the executor of his estate. Like I have medical power of attorney. Like should we resuscitate him? He won't be able to eat chocolate ice cream. Should we resuscitate him? He won't be able to watch football. And as silly as like a little conversation like that is, it means that his dad can die in a way that he wants to die. Like his dad can die in a way that writes an ending to his life story. I'm trying to think as you were telling that story, Joe, I was trying to think about what my lowest bar of quality of life would be <laughs> well, like it sounds like it's just settling after settling after settling <laughs> i'd like to go to the super bowl one day <laughs> i'd like to watch football i'd like to be I'd able like to, to hold the football, football. <laughs> i'd like to think to about the idea of feet and ball <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to have feet <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. It seems like this is a constant grasp for control and losing control. And mm-hmm. uh, is that what this book uh, completely avoids act- in actuality? Is this book aware that it's just a constant grasp for control? No. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it absolutely is. Mm. Like, that's that's the premise that he starts out with, it is. right? Okay. He's like, he's yeah. like, look, you are going to die. And on your way to dying, there's a good chance that you're going to be like increasingly crippled and humiliated by your body, right? Mm-hmm. So this is how to navigate that process. Deftly. Here's the how to. Like, this is not how to navigate that process well. And like, you're going to come to the end where you, you know, your decisions are all Sophie's choice at a certain point, but you can at least make the decision that maximizes maximizes whatever you want to maximize. Maybe it's maximizing dignity. Maybe it's maximizing or minimizing um, pain. Maybe it's, maybe it is maximizing longevity, right? But you have had the discussions, you have put things in place to make those decisions ahead of time and really end your story in the way that you want to end it. Sometimes we read books by people who are, as you say, extremely qualified and, Mm -hmm. um, Maybe not particularly extremely qualified to talk about old age since he hasn't gone through it and his parents are just going through it for the first time, but extremely qualified in general. Do you feel like we give more credence to this or like last last week, last week? No, two weeks ago when you brought um, when you brought the book by John Green. Do you feel like mm. this is a case where we give credence to his ideas about old age and dying because he's such a superstar? Like, as if, do you think that if some rando had had the same thoughts and written them down, we'd be like, get out of here. This is dumb. Yeah. You know, so it's that it's that question of ethos. Like, why do we believe Atul Gawande? I, I think all of the strength in this book comes from the stories that he tells about individuals, right? Like, like Atul Gawande is super accomplished. Okay. Like, he never says that in the text. Like, that's, you know, you got to go to his Wikipedia page. Those to are find Joe, that stuff Joe's out. words. But, that, those are things that I am bringing to the table for the lit heads. Um, <laughs> instead, like he tells you about death and dying and then he tells you about his wife's grandma, Alice. And like, it is the story of Alice that convinces you. It is the story of the 95 year old man zipping around in his, you know, Honda Civic with 29,000 miles on it. That convinces you. It's the story about his dad eating ice cream and watching football that convinces you. I'll allow it. Yeah, we will allow it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for, for taking you my comments. For. <laughs> hey, you know how you guys keep bringing only books that you teach in high school because they've been taught for the last hundred years? Uh, I was thinking maybe next week you guys could bring some some deep cuts. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Also sounds good to me. No, I think, I think that's good. I think, um, part of the, part of the joy of, uh, listener recommendations is, is that they, they, um, push us beyond, beyond like our comfort zone. Um, and I'm not going to bring a listener recommendation next week, but this is like, this is the cool thing about this podcast. We are learning and growing, um, as we, as we look at, uh, what to read. So I'm going to bring a book by um, the deepest of deep cut type authors, Stephen King. I would say that the book I'm bringing, which is from a Buick 8, is both hard to talk about and a deep cut, but we're doing deep cuts, so I'll talk about that as a deep cut. 
awesome. And I'm going to bring a book by the guy that I've read more than anybody else. That makes it sound like I've read more Kurt Vonnegut than anybody else has read yeah, Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, it does. That's what yeah, I'm going to read. the Vonnegut doctor? I am the Vonnegut expert. Dr. Vonnegut, they call me. Um, I am going to bring um, a deep cut of his called Dead Eye Dick, which is a book that I haven't read in many, many years, but I would love to revisit. I also thought Nick would like the title a lot. Hey, Nick, yeah. Dead Eye Dick. It's good, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Actually, thank you both for bringing deep cuts from two of the most famously lauded authors of our generation. <laughs> I'm sure nobody's heard of this. I'm sure everybody hearing this would be like, that's not a deep cut. <laughs> yeah, there are going to be those people out there from a yeah. Buick 8. From a Buick 8. Try yeah. a real deep cut. Yeah, try a real deep cut. Well, you know what? Get over it. We're going to talk about these books next yeah. week. <laughs> start your own podcast. Don't, but don't. Don't actually start your own podcast, especially if it's more famous than ours. Yeah, we don't need that type of competition. Do you ever hear Kevin Smith tell the story about Ben Affleck? Um, where where <laughs> Ben Affleck Ben Affleck is on a set of Kevin Smith's and he keeps ad-libbing lines and Kevin Smith tells him, "Hey, fucking stop it! Like, stick to the script. If like if you want to write a movie, go write your own." And then Ben Affleck, of course, wrote um, "Goodwill Hunting" and won an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, Oops. Kevin tells that every time we that story every time we hang out. I, I it's kind of getting kind of old at that point. It's, uh, it's probably yes. a good time to just give a nice shout out to Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Kevin Smith. Fan of the show. No, no he's alive. No. He's alive. No. He did have a heart attack on stage, but he's fine. <laughs> Holy cow. See, when we say a living author or personality is a fan of the show, that it, that effectively counts as a threat, and we can't have that, like legally. <laughs> hey, Ian. This is A Tale of Two Cities. It is fictional, and I want to start off with a one-star review from... That's bullshit. No, no, no. It's, it's Nick's out of I'm material now. Thank you for allowing. I'm not stepping on your on your gimmick, Nick, because this is a one star review from the people who uh, from a contemporary critic. So the book was published in 1859, and in, late in 1859, a critic wrote the following about this book: "This is a dish of puppy pie and stewed cat, which is not disguised by the cooking." Okay, I is he hated it. Is this a pause for effect or is there anything no, the else? the critic just hated it. And he said it's like, he said this book is like, um, if you cooked puppies and kitties, it's yeah. that, that oh, disgusting God. and it's not even good quality. Was that a popular dish back then? It was not. It was really, I think, kind of like doing some, using context clues. I think this is uh, an unpopular thing. Okay. All right. Maybe well, we should say the least popular thing. So Maybe it's cultural though. Maybe... I mean, the British do eat some funny things, so. Um, I have a one-star review from Joy. <laughs> Great, yes, let's hear it. Okay, one-star review. Uh, this book is awful. I don't know why English teachers make kids read it. So my question is, where do you guys get off? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking on behalf of Joy. Interesting. I, Joe, have you ever assigned any Dickens? Uh, no, the only Dickens I've ever read has been for this mm. podcast, mm -hmm. and that was sure. uh, A Christmas Carol, which I loved. When people say what the Dickens, is that no. based on the no, author? Great question. It's not. Ian said that pretty confidently. Nick, I'm going to say confidently that yes, it is. Interesting. It's called a minced oath. It's called a minced oath and it predates Charles Dickens because like you, would, you, you're, so you're really saying what the devil, but they didn't want to say devil. So they said Dickens uh, because it sounds. They didn't want to summon him. What the Charles? It's got two <laughs> syllables. It starts with D. Right. They could have. 
they could have said something else instead of right. Dickens, like that starts with the two oh, syllables. But oh, hey Joe, it goes back to Shakespeare. It goes back to Shakespeare, of course. Oh, wait, it does? I didn't God. know that. One explanation is that the euphemism for devil or old Nick. Wait a minute. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. old, is Nick. old Nick. Another yeah, yeah. word for devil. Oh yeah. Totally. Are you I've serious? Never heard this before? Yeah, because that's my name. So this is concerning. So well, no, Nick. You just need to know as you get older, you're going to turn into the devil. And that's cool because he's immortal. Oh, this is a bad omen. A nickname for the devil is Old Nick. This is terrible news. This is Nick. I don't think you guys are really understanding the magnitude of this. <laughs> well, here's the good news, Nick. If you do turn into the devil and you are immortal, you probably get to keep your driver's license as long as you want. Yeah, there is an alcohol of rum, white rum, called Old Nick. <laughs> Okay, Nick is just Nick is just googling himself. We need to move on. Uh, I'm gonna tell you, uh, I'm gonna tell you what happens in this book because the book, like, this is a really well plotted and fairly intricate book. There's also a, kind of some huge spoilers, which I'm going to t- just I'm going to totally avoid as much Side as possible. No, yeah, I'm gonna totally avoid. It's one of the rules. Um, so this is a novel of historical fiction. It's set um, before and during the French Revolution. Nick, do you know what the French Revolution was? I know of it. Okay. Mm. They they hated the the um, the the peasants got really angry at the aristocrats and chopped a bunch of their heads off. And then they right. realized, hey, Classic. we can chop anybody's heads off because we have the power. <laughs> and so they were just chopping off heads of their <laughs> <heads. laughs> anybody. They just went crazy. They got excited. I mean, it started off just very good. Like the aristocrats have squeezed us dry for literal centuries. Let's execute them for their crimes to society, which might be not, it might be too much, but at least it's kind of ideological it's got a principle and then they were like hey that person over there uh looked at me funny so i think they're probably a fan of aristocrats and we should chop their head off the the problem is of course that like anybody who makes more money than you could be an aristocrat yeah (laughs) that's right where do you draw that line and anybody you have a grudge against and there was so much like fear and kind of bureaucracy that all you had to do was just basically go and denounce someone oh, and they'd be thrown in jail and probably killed soon. Um, so this book is set before and during the French Revolution and it mostly is focused on a father and a daughter. The father's name is, father's name is Manette and the daughter's name is Lucy. Um, and the father, one of the really cool parts of this book is that the father is imprisoned in the Bastille and the, the the account of his imprisonment is just so I mean it's your classic like dungeon and like yeah chains manacles yeah yeah and it's just like so it's almost like when you read it now it feels like a cliche but you gotta know you gotta remember he's sort of writing these cliches for the first time so I right. bet it's kind of damp yeah oh it's so damp and he's his health is not great I bet there's rats wet rats he's like scratching on the wall of his cell to make to make like the dates and stuff so classic it's so classic it's it's like a classic situation he's imprisoned and then he's released after 18 years and he's reunited with his daughter in England and then she falls in love with a French dude and they get married and this is important there is a different dude who is also in love with her his name is Sydney and Sydney is kind of Uh-oh. a kind of a dissolute fellow. He's not like he's not the most. He's a drunk and he's really lazy. And Sydney falls in love with her and he proposes and she says no. I'm sorry. I love this French dude who is. They they look like the French dude and Sydney look exactly alike, but they're very different in character. Can I just say um, something, Ian? Yeah. Uh, if I've said it once, I've said it at least twice. 
Uh, if you don't know that the answer is yes, you really shouldn't be asking somebody to marry you. I mean, this is unbelievable. Have that conversation, people. I was, okay, I remember being a kid and being really afraid. Like I was, I was like in third grade and I would get this fear of asking somebody to marry me someday. I was like, what if they reject you? Oh my God. And then of course, what you realize is, oh, oh, like you already know the answer. Like you ask somebody to marry you who wants to marry you. (laughs) Right. Yes. Who has demonstrated clearly that's what they're interested in. So he and and that's he's I mean, it's a different time, but also he just he is really he's a really sad character. He he is like a brilliant lawyer, but he's such a bum that he kind of he doesn't ever meet his maximum potential. And he's just a, a very sympathetic kind of kind of pitiful character. We'll get back to him in a second. So okay. um, everything's going well. Lucy is married to a French guy who's cool. Um, Sydney is just kind of like, well, dang it. I lost my shot. Eventually, um, the whole, the whole group of them go back to France, right in the middle of the reign of terror, um, for reasons that I don't need to get into, but they go back there and her husband, uh, the cool French guy is arrested and sentenced to be guillotined straight to death. Um, and there's all kinds of like courtroom drama and stuff. I'm not going to tell you kind of what happens after this because that's where we're getting to real spoiler territory. It's, I'm just going to say this is not a downer. This book doesn't end with like, and then the French reign of terror won and the noble, <laughs> noble people were murdered and executed in the end. Weep. No, um, it's just not a downer. That's that's what I'll say. And also kind of like on the periphery, I'm trying to give you broad strokes here. There is just a ton of. Dickens is writing this serially. He's releasing it serially. So he's got to keep people in, engaged and involved. Interesting. There's a ton of like really sensational, cool stuff. There's like spies and double agents. There's this creepy French couple named the Dufarges and they own this wine shop and they're just, they're so, they're so bloodthirsty. Um, i there is memories a, of Three Musketeers as you right. talk about Ian, this. I would like to point out that Ian has really dragged serially written books through the mud on this show before, at, mostly at my expense, but through the thick mud in the fields of France. Hmm. Hey, Ian, what do, you, what do you have to say hey, for Joe, yourself? it's been noted. All right. I, I, it is well documented in my thorough notes that I take every episode. <laughs> <laughs> Scribbling on a whiteboard. I will say that, so this is written towards like the, the peak of Dickens' career, and Dickens was at a point later in his life. He wasn't scrounging for money so much. So, I mean, there's there's serial publication, there's serial publication. There's the one where you're like an unknown author. You have to hook people at the end of every installment or they won't buy the next one. And then there's a kind where everyone will always buy your stuff. So you can afford to be kind of artsy with it. So this is serially published. It's got a lot of sensational stuff. Um, there's this, uh, one more example. There is this awesome, like classic evil French aristocrat. He's a marquis and he runs over a child with his carriage and then he's murdered in this spectacular, creepy way. But Dickens is like well off enough by this point in his, in his writing career that he doesn't have to like, it doesn't have to be just, uh, he can play with his readers a little bit. He can kind of like introduce mysterious characters and not resolve who they are. He can sort of um, communicate what's happening in a more suggestive as opposed to um, a direct explication type way. And it's just very, it's so good. There's some really sad shoemaking in this book too. I should add that as well. (laughs) Thank you for adding that. So he was pretty famous when he wrote this book. Yeah, he he was at the point in his career where like everyone... Everyone they wanted that Dickens. 
he was kind of like okay. He was kind of like uh, I would say like um, your your Stephen King or your J.K. Rowling uh, in terms of popularity. Just like people will buy deal. whatever he it's puts out. Popular, yeah. The cities in this book are Paris and London. Those are the two cities. It is the town. Oh, those two cities. Spoilers. No, it's not really a spoiler. It's like it's it's laid out quite early in the book. Okay. Um, the action moves back and forth between them. Um, there's an emphasis on France. This is kind of interesting because a lot of Dickens' work is kind of like England. It's in England. So this is an outlier in a couple of different ways. I think it really helped shape how we think about the French Revolution. Um, let me digress quickly. Do you guys know mm-hmm. like the famous thing that Julius Caesar said? He said, like Vini, Vini, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. He sure, said, that's one. What else, a, what else a, did a he two say? Brute. Hey, yeah, that's day. the one. I think he said, so, where's the beef? He did say, where's the beef? But he, it's not super famous. It's kind of more of a right. deep cut. So the thing about Caesar is that we don't know for sure that he said et tu brute because, <laughs> yeah. because that's in the Shakespeare play. That's in the Shakespeare play, but that's kind of an invention of Shakespeare's. So... Shakespeare's Shakespeare's play about Julius Caesar kind of wrote the popular history about Julius Caesar, even though the real history about Julius Caesar is somewhat different. I think Tale of Two Cities has done something similar with our understanding of the French Revolution. Like a lot of our ideas about what the French Revolution was, you know, like guillotines and tumbrils, might be coming from Tale of Two Cities. Ian, why does this make you sob like a little baby? Tiny baby. Okay, so here's why. Um, In a word, in a hyphenated word, self-sacrifice. In a word. Yes. There is, um, there's this guy, our, our, our kind of sad sack, Sydney, and he, he has a lot of potential and he doesn't live up to his potential. And, He's, he's kind of self-destructive and we see him kind of throughout the book making bad choices. And the book is, the book isn't like, look at this idiot. He's the worst. The book is like, look at this, this guy, he's taking wrong turn after wrong turn. We've all, I think we've all known people like that, you know, yeah. just kind of perpetually, you know, making just like, oh, you made, you, you just want right. to the, shake him. Yeah. Right. Like if there's a bad decision, that guy makes it. <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes yeah. we see like the the ripple effects of this like down through their lives. So you know, like they, they take a wrong mm-hmm. turn here, and and anyone can write their ship. That's you know that's possible. But we see folks kind of spiraling, and that's really really sad to see people kind of making their own making bad choices and then dealing with the bad effects. Realizing, I think it's worse when they realize like I did, I made a mistake, and now I'm paying for it. That like makes it even more sad. Mm-hmm. So this character is kind of like that. And the book is a does a really kind of poignant job of of showing him doing this. Um, he drinks too much. He's lazy. He's I think he's he kind of depressed. He has depression. Sort of. Um, he's in love with Lucy, and Lucy says, "I'm sorry, you're great, but uh, this is not. I'm not going to marry you. I don't love you. I love this other guy who looks exactly like you, but has his life together." Um, Ooh, we've heard that one before. And if you were his friend, you were thinking, "Okay, but like, dude, did you?" did you think she was going to say yes? Like, did you talk uh, to her about that? And he's like, no, like I, we just, we just knew or hope. 
hope. Yeah, I think hope. hope is even more sad because like there's <laughs> oh, God. Even, well, hope is sad. it's even That's more right, like Ian. poignant and it's more like, oh man. And especially like when we kind of standing out, out to the side, we can say, no, there's no, sh- you have no shot, but he still shoots his shot and he has no shot. So, um, he kind of, the book builds him up to be, um, to need redemption. He's a character who is desperately in need of a redemption arc and he gets it toward the end of the book. He has the opportunity to kind of like save the lives of Lucy and her whole family, but this is a great personal cost. And he does this. He sees oh. he sees this and he does this willingly and gladly and it's this beautiful like overpoweringly sweet moment of redemption for him. And it's amazing payoff of how he's been built up throughout the book. It's an act of unselfish love. And that's, I mean, that's always going to get me. So like, he's not, okay, he's not a nice guy, right? (laughs) He's not an incel who's like, oh, she rejected me, but I'll just like keep doing stuff to make her love me again. Yeah, I'll just hang around till she loves me. Exactly. No, he is like, hey, I want her to be happy and she is, and that's fine. I, he's like, I realize I've made mistakes. I realize I've screwed my life up. And he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to take this one for the team and the team is them. And I will be happy as I go through this ordeal, knowing that they're happy. It's like your heart is breaking for him a little bit. The entire book, I would imagine like every decision that he makes, your heart breaks for him for a little bit. And then finally he does the right thing. Like he does like the incredibly noble thing. And it comes at a tremendous personal cost to yeah. him. And it's like you, your heart can't help but continue to break for him, but yeah. for all the right reasons. Yeah, I, I totally right. get it. I'm on board. It's, a, it's, it's, really like, it's really like a moral victory. He ends having redeemed himself from this really sort of dreadful, I mean, he's, his life is a downer. And the, the sacrifice he makes at the end is of the, at the end of the book is it it it's it rescues him and it makes this book sweetly a happy ending even though it's really really ah, it's painful but it's sweet the word the word i keep using is poignant and it's a really good word because it it gets at this it's not a oh my goodness we're all going to die and that's rough <laughs> to think about it's like yeah you know what there is hope even in moments of hopelessness, even when you think you've messed up over and over, you still can make a good choice and turn your life around. Man, it's so yeah. it's such a good book. It's really it's hard. Satisfying. I think this is hard, Nick, because this this is something that that really like makes me. It really gets me. And if you're like, well, should have made better decisions, like it might not get you the same way. But um. I think this is a really powerful book and it makes me cry, not tears of like sadness, but joy that he, that he makes this, he makes this turn around. Well, lucky for you, Ian, I have a soft spot <laughs> somewhere in old Diablo's heart. <laughs> Nick's, Nick is still over there just Googling old Nick, Nick frantically. Nick hasn't listened to anything since we just, Apparently I'm nope. the, I'm the devil. <laughs> that's you know that's the real cry book this week. Yeah, that's the real sad story. Oh man, this is a tough one because I feel like these are actually both good books. 
And sometimes you guys, <laughs> one of you typically brings a real stinker. To point out the obvious, Joe, your book seems like it would actually be useful in my life. <laughs> you are going to die. <laughs> like it, I would immediately be able to put this into use. I, I have no doubt that your book would make me cry. You know what? I was going to say something positive about your book, Ian, but... Uh, I think you lose this week because I think I think mm. I just stated the obvious in which I think mm -hmm. Joe's book would really I think it would fulfill the theme this week. Um, mm. So congratulations, Joe. Thank you. It's good to have a win. And that is how we choose. That is all <laughs> the un, uh, inviolable rule oh. of this podcast. The fourth rule, as you might say. Mm -hmm. Leadheads. Um, Old neck shoots from the hip. <laughs> Leadheads, if you would like to um, not make us cry. You could head on over nice. to our social media, shoot, shoot us a like or a, a follow or whatever whatever floats your goat over there. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at You Don't Know Lit. You can also suggest a theme or a book uh, at our website, You Don't Know Lit Podcast.com. And I'll just say again this week's theme, which I don't know, I think it was a pretty good theme suggested by Cam. Thank you, Cam, for, I mean, Thank maybe you, not Cam. super, not super happy, but. I, yeah. I like I agree. thinking Good about. Theme. I like thinking about what what makes me cry. It's an interesting sort of internal discovery thing. Joe, congratulations! <clears throat> thank you, thank you, Doctor DeYoung. Thank you, Nick, and thank you, Leadheads. Um, I have a very short quote for you this week. Death is the enemy, but the enemy has superior forces. Eventually, it wins, and in war that you cannot win, you don't want a general who fights to the point of total annihilation. You don't want Custer, you want Robert E. Lee, someone who knows how to fight for territory that can be won and how to surrender it when it can't. Someone who understands that the damage is greatest if all you do is battle to the bitter end. 